You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I remember being in a church service once when uh, there was a man who fell asleep, which none of you are going to do, and his wife was a little bit mischievous, and she woke him, but she didn't just wake him by a gentle nudge. She went, hey, wake up, quick, 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 and he went, whoa, 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 he jumped up, <laughs> because it was some kind of urgent wake up. You know, and she th- he thought, obviously, that there was something wrong. He was so embarrassed. I'm, I'm not sure that they're still married, but uh, it was uh, an interesting sight. We wake up people with, uh, there's, an, there's an urgency. Uh, maybe there's a fire. Maybe we feel that there's th- thieves within the house. There's, uh, maybe it's a great opportunity. Maybe you get woken up because uh, you're going to miss your train I remember uh, being woken up by my good lady who's on the crash at the moment, so I can tell this story without any embarrassment. I remember being woken up by her uh, when our first son was due, and she suggested that her waters had broken and the baby was on the way, and apparently I said, go back to sleep, he'll come in the morning. (laughs) Not the response that one should make in those circumstances, believe you me. We, we speak of a wake-up call, and I think uh, what we look at this morning is a wake-up call from God to his people. It's why we sang Awake, Awake, O Zion at the beginning, and it's something that is repeated several times in Isaiah, and repetition also indicates something that is important. Uh, you, uh, you can imagine a mother saying to her child, how many times have I told you? Well, that's because it's important. It gets repeated because it's important. So we're going to look at this, and I hope that you will see how it connects to the world that we're in and to the needs that you and I have. I love the book of Isaiah for lots of reasons, because I like the poetic books of the Bible, and I like the gospel uh, books of the Bible, and I like the historical books of the Bible. I just like the Bible, but Isaiah combines all these together, and... Just for the background here, God's people are facing enormous difficulties, exile and the promised return to Jerusalem, but enemies who are out to get them, and it seems as though all the promises of God beforehand have come to nothing. So with that in mind, let's go to uh, Isaiah chapter 51 and at verse 9. Awake, awake. Clothe yourself with strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Now here's the interesting thing. This is God's people saying to God, wake up, Lord. God doesn't sleep. We need sleep. He doesn't. Uh, I'm reading a book just now, a wonderful wee book on burnout. It's just absolutely uh, brilliant. And the way that it's done is the author talks about how um, we are different from God. 
God doesn't need friends, we do. God doesn't need rest, we do. God doesn't sleep, we do. So what's going on here when the people here are asking God to awake? What they're saying is, it is that it feels to them as though God has gone to sleep, as though the Lord has, is no longer active in the lives of his people. And I am absolutely certain that there are some of you here that you will immediately identify with that experience because you remember the time when you first became a Christian or you remember the time when, when life was buzzing for you, when the scriptures were alive. And now, to be honest, in the words of the standard Presbyterian response, Scottish Presbyterian response, because others have different cultures and different... How are you getting on? Oh, plodding on. Plodding on. Um, you know, a Scotsman could be there on the day of Pentecost... How was it? Oh, plodding on. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that was God's people. We feel that sometimes. We just feel that God is not working in our lives. We hear of God at work in other places, and it sounds really exciting. And we hear about other people, and it sounds really exciting, but with us. And that's what the Israelites were remembering. And what they were remembering was the arm of the Lord going with Moses. Used many times, Exodus 6, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And so the Israelites are coming to God and they're saying, you did this in the past. Now can you rescue us from the Babylonians? Rahab, it's an interesting phrase because some people read this and they think that what Isaiah is doing is taking the Babylonian myth of the monster Rahab and using that. But actually what's happening here is he's taking that, but Rahab was the, the sea monster of Babylonian mythology. But Rahab was also Egypt's nickname. And what's happening here is he's saying, remember what you did to Egypt. This is a reference to the Exodus. It's a reference to the great escape that came as the Red Sea was Divided, and they escape through. There are periods in church history when it appears as though God is not acting in defense of his name. We remember the past and we pray for a great deliverance. We need that kind of intercessory prayer. Prayer which pleads the character of God. Prayer which pleads the history of God and the glory of God. And it is not wrong to come to the Lord and to ask him to arise, to ask him to awake, to ask him to come and save his people, to bring a great escape again. My view is that, um, and it's not very popular to say this, my view is that the church in Scotland uh, is in a, a mess. And it's a far worse mess than most of us realize But too many of us, even in the evangelical church, bury our heads in the sand and refuse to see what's happening, or we see what's happening and it depresses us and we give up, when instead we should be crying out to the Lord to wake up. Um, and really, we're asking him to wake up his church, as we will see. So we pray for that because, verse 11, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will 
enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is an almost direct quote of Isaiah 35, verse 10. The ransom of the Lord will return. They'll enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Notice you get this joy. The ransomed of the Lord. The redeemed of the Lord. Zion here is now no longer the city of Jerusalem. It is the people of God. And it's such a change that's occurred in their circumstances that they are singing for joy, joy on their head. And that's the image there is one of having flowers in your hair. Now, some of you are old enough and some of you maybe were hippies in the 1960s. And so you'll know the reference. Are you going to San Francisco? Be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Ian Craig is smiling at me going, that's not me, that's not me. But yes, it is. Um, I can remember it, and I was just about three years old at the time. But it's, it, it's that image of having flowers in your, in, in your hair, if you have hair. And uh, there's joy on their head here. The joy on their head was this idea of the procession and the flowers. When God is at work, there is great sorrow for sin, but there is also great joy the sorrow is banished the sorrow is taken away i thought of two instances of this um there's an old hymn days are filled with sorrow and care hearts are lonely and drear it's not exactly a contemporary worship song is it um but it goes on burdens are lifted at calvary jesus is very near Burdens are lifted at Calvary. As a Christian, you can have days that are filled with sorrow and care. But Jesus lifts our burdens. Even in the midst of the most intense sorrow, you can experience the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord can be your strength. By the way, if you're not a Christian, that's one of the great advantages of being a Christian. Being a Christian is not being shut away, immune from all the pressures of life or not experiencing sorrow. Sometimes as a Christian, you might experience it more intensely. But it is also that this joy of the Lord comes. Now, I had the privilege yesterday of reading about an amazing man. I'm just so thrilled about this. Some of you will get as excited as me, and others of you will say, what are you talking about? Um, I like Bach, as in uh, the musician. In fact, to say I like him is beyond that. I just absolutely love listening to J.S. Bach. And uh, there are people who are kind of devotees, and there are composers, who, uh, or conductors rather, who have devoted their lives to conducting his music. And perhaps the best known and the most famous of them is a man called Masaki Suzuki, who, of course, is Japanese and who others of us who are not as cultured think immediately of motorbikes. But um, he has just finished producing the 55th CD of Bach's music. He's just completed it. And he's now down in London for a month at the Barbican. I so want to go and meet him. And what amazed me about him is, as I listened to him conducting, Bach is just, it's so biblical, it's so scriptural, and it's so beautiful. I was thinking, how does a Japanese man get this? Now, you see, there's a little bit of racism in there, because I'm thinking he's probably Shinto or atheist or something. And then I read this article this week. I did not know this in The Spectator. 
uh, it said this, Bach is not only a, because the, the writer asked this question, how does he get it? And he says, he is not only a Christian, he's even more extreme than Bach himself, who was a Lutheran, he's a Calvinist. And I thought, what? <laughs> Masaki Suzuki is a Calvinist? And I almost choked. And, and then it's, 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 it's true. He belongs to the Reformed Church in Japan. And they did an interview with him. And, and forgive the lengthy quotes from this. But this is stunning stuff. You really have got to uh, get this stuff. He said, this is what um, Suzuki says. With the help of his disciples, God left us the Bible. By the way, on the very first of his CDs, he put this in. Because he wanted to glorify God, he said. That's why he was doing it, just like Bach did. With the help of his disciples, God left us the Bible. Into the hands of Bach, he delivered the cantatas. That is why our mission is to keep performing them. We must pass on God's message through these works and sing them to express glory to God. Well, that enough would have fed my soul. But then he went on to discuss theology. And he said this, because in the, as a Calvinist, you can believe in luck, because luck is ordained by God. So that's fine. As an Arminian, you can't. You can't, oh, no, no, it's not lucky. But as a Calvinist, you can say, yeah, lucky. That's, and he says this, I'm lucky to be there because Calvinism is so practical for evaluating cultural activity in this world. Any type of music can be appreciated. Then again, Calvin saw music as part of God's creation in this world, part of the wonderful grace that he has sent for us. It doesn't need to be sung as worship to glorify God, and it doesn't lose its spiritual power because the performers or the audience are not Christian. And when he's asked by the interviewer, but you're a Calvinist, you believe people are going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. He said, yes, I do. And then he said this, I think of people waiting to be saved. And in Japan, most people are waiting. I don't think I may judge them at all because no one can know what's happening in each soul, each heart. So our task is to carry the message in the music. And then the journalist was so amazed by this. He, he writes this, it's hard to think of any conductor at all of whom this is true. This irrepressibly cheerful man. Imagine that, a Calvinist who's irrepressibly cheerful. This irrepressibly cheerful man does believe that the singers in front of him and the audience behind him will face divine judgment. The lady in the fifth row may smile at the felicities of Bach's counterpoint, but one day she will either join the company of the saints or in the words of Cantata 115, be covered in the sleep of eternal death. That's extraordinary. Now you listen to Suzuki. I, I find listening to him just incredibly emotional because when uh, St. Matthew's Passion, John, Ch and one day I'd love to have an Easter here where we did St. Matthew's, kind of a quality of singing that maybe we've not quite reached yet, but one day, one day we can but dream and when you listen to St. Matthew's Passion or St. John's Passion by Bach, it is, it is even, I mean, non-Christians recognize this. It's probably the most beautiful sound that's ever been made on earth. It is it's just, it's extraordinary. And you know what it's about? It's about the suffering and death of Jesus. And yet the joy in that is astonishing. Now that is what is being taught here. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. See, you get plenty of people who go, I like the joy. You know, I like it when you've got a black gospel choir. I like all the hallelujahs. Oh, I'd go to church if it was like that. You know, every now and then on Britain's Got Talent or something, there'll be a gospel choir come on and people go, oh, yeah, you made me go to church and I would go to church if it was that. You don't get the joy without the cross and you don't get the joy without the sorrow. 
And that's what Bach, of course, gets because he's just giving us the word of God. He's giving us the Bible. And that's what Mazaki Suzuki gets as well. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. See, that's where the mistaken caricature of Calvinism that occurs is, does so much harm. This idea that it's gloom and doom and depression and sorrow and sadness and, and, and so on. Where to smile at all in church is almost a sin. To raise your hands, whoa, that's dangerous. To clap, you're kidding, that's of the devil. No, it's not. It's not. There's a joy. There's a joy that comes. And I think often of Psalm 51, give me back the joy I had. Make or keep my willing spirit glad. And that's what God promises to his people. But then, verses 12 to 15, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of men who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. For where is the wrath of the oppressor? I, even I, am he who comforts you. Repetition. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort my people. Comfort my people. This is God's response. The people say, Lord, where are you? Wake up. We, We want to be rescued. We want the everlasting joy. We want to come to Zion. And God says to his people, I am awake. It's his quiet response. He's saying, calm down. Listen to me. Think, I am awake. And he asks us to think about several things. Firstly, he says, think about your oppressors. They are merely human beings. And they are but grass. They're frail. You're frail, but they are frail. Why would you fear them? Hitler dies. Stalin dies. Mao dies. Your oppressors die. Everyone dies. Again, I'm of a, an age and a generation where there are people here who grew up with the kind of early and therefore the best rock music and uh, the cliche, you know, hope I die before I get old. You know, old you know, rock singers don't want to die. We're going to party and all this kind of stuff. But they've all grown old. But now they're dying. So this past week, George Martin, the fifth Beatle, dies. Or uh, David Bowie died a couple of weeks ago. Or showing real taste, if you know this, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Emerson died this week. And I'm hearing this, and I'm thinking, this is the soundtrack of my early life, and they're all dying. Because they are all dying. Because I look out at you, and you're all dying. And because everyone I see is all dying. And because all of these politicians, and all Trump, and Obama, and Cameron, and Merkel, and so on, it won't be too long before they're all dead. So God says, why do you fear? Now, that may not appear to be much of a comfort because what's true of them is also of us. But what God is saying is this, stop fearing them. Trust the one who doesn't die. Trust the one who is eternal. Trust the one who is forever good. And that's the contrast with God, the eternal one, the one who creates, the one who stretches out the heavens, the one who laid the foundations of the earth. 
You live in constant terror every, every day, he says, because of the wrath of the oppressor. But where is the wrath of the oppressor? Look at this. The cowering prisoners will soon be set free. They will not die in their dungeon, nor will they lack bread. For I am the Lord your God who churns up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Sometimes we are people of great fear. And we need to turn away from that terror. The wrath of the oppressor is real. The dangers are real. The things that you and I are afraid of are real. Cancer is real. Road accidents are real. Political persecution is real. The threats of all around us in our culture are real. And there is a temptation to be terrified. When I uh, came out of hospital after a serious illness, the um, hospital uh, asked me if we could set up an ICU support group which we did for, and it meets here occasionally, for uh, relatives of people who are in intensive care or have come through intensive care, actually. And the main reason they asked was this. They said, it's, it's astonishing what you have come through, but that psychologically you don't appear to be damaged. Now, I know the jokes, so just forget that. <laughs> but they said, the biggest problem we have is people who go through this and sometimes you'll get people who've recovered, but they stay in their homes because they're terrified. It's got nothing to do with their illness, but they're terrified. They don't want to go out. They live in terror. And one of the things that we try to do with the ICU steps is encourage families and encourage individuals to, to live. But we need comfort to live when we are terrified. See, what God is doing here is giving us the language of relationship and commitment. What Paul does in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the security. Our children's security is because of our, our, our love for them. Your partner's security is in your love for them. Our security, the absolute security, is in God's love for us. It is a commitment to us that is as strong and pure as God himself, and it will never, ever fail. See, Verse 14 talks about cowering, and it uses a word for a prisoner that he's curled up in a ball in the corner of his cell. Come free. Think of Acts chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer, where Paul and Silas, there's this tremendous earthquake, and the prison gates are open, and the prisoners stay in. Sometimes the prison gates have been opened, and we're still cowering down. We're still curled up in a bowl. We don't know what the joy of the Lord is. We're depressed. We're dejected. We're broken. Now, I'm not saying it's sinful to be depressed any more than it is sinful to be, have the flu or to have a broken leg. But I'm saying sometimes that some of the reasons for our depression is because we are very internally internalized, always looking at ourselves and we need to learn to look away and to look to the Lord. I love Heidelberg Catechism question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins. With his precious blood, 
and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, we live for ourselves, and so we're afraid because within ourselves, we know we can't save ourselves, and we are afraid. But we know that Jesus has fully paid for all our sins, that he preserves us in such a way that not even a hair can fall from our head without the will of our heavenly father. He assures us of eternal life. It just sets us free. It sets us free to serve and to love and to laugh and to worship and to live. And then verse 16. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. Because our God is a God who speaks. He takes us in the, in the shadow of his hand. We have the shadow of the valley of death. We have the shadow of the pressures that we face at work and the shadow of troubles in our own home and the shadow of all the things that are going on and these, this world of shadows. And God puts us in the shelter and the shadow of his hand and says, you are mine. You are my people. You are the redeemed of the Lord. You are the rescued we have been given God's words. We are to share them with people. If only God would talk to me. If only God would say, yeah, he has. He has. That's the point. That's why Suzuki could say that. When I, when I even in German, Japanese people singing German, word perfect. It's just the most extraordinary beauty. And you, you go to it and because you think, what is he singing about? And you go and you look at the translation and it's just John's gospel. And, and it just really impacts you. If only God would say, but he has. God has spoken. God continues to speak. Some think that this might refer here to Isaiah or it might refer especially to Christ. And I think it refers to both, but it also refers to us sharing God's word. And I love this image, by the way, of covered in the shadow of God's hand, laying the foundations of the new heavens. and The God who lays the foundations of heaven and earth, and, and the image here is one of renewal. The God who planted the heavens. Now, if you know anything at all about astronomy, it, the, the universe is just so incredible. It's so massive. It's so big. It's so extraordinary. And yet our God planted it like some of you will be going out into your garden and planting seeds in the next couple of weeks he planted it i think the image here is one as well of order restored in a chaotic world in a chaotic universe but the god who does that is the god who lays the foundation of the earth i think that for me is you know what do they sing? He's got the whole world in his hands. Maybe it's easier to believe that than to believe that God has got your life in his hands. Yeah? Maybe you've been told you've got cancer and you don't suddenly, maybe God hasn't got my life in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands and that includes you. And that's why 
We begin with urgency, awake, awake. We finish, finish with urgency because it's as though Isaiah is, is saying, do it now. Work again. Because the key thing here is we need to, are the people who need to get, get woken up, not God. It's not as though we're awake and God is asleep. It's almost the very opposite. There are some of you here who need to awaken to your desperate need. You know, you're in church and you're batting back and forward and who knows? I don't know what you're thinking right now. Maybe when's it going to end? I don't know. You just, you, you, who knows? But you are not listening to the word of God as you should because you are not aware of the desperate need and the desperate place that you are in. And you are not even thinking about grasping the great provision that the Lord has made. If you're not a Christian, you need to awaken to your need. But those of us who are Christians, we need to awaken to our need because we are so proud and we are so arrogant and we are so complacent that we think, I've got this, I can handle this, I can deal with this, and you can't. You can't. There's nothing in your life that ultimately you have control of. You give it all to God because God has it all anyway. I, uh, I like listening sometimes to different preachers. And uh, as I was got up this morning, I listened uh, to uh, a Tim Keller podcast talking about mission. And I was thinking of this in terms of the missions conference and there was just some wonderful stuff in there. But in particular, he says this. As you learn about God, you don't need almost to be told to go, although Abraham was told to go and others are told to go. As you learn about God, you want to go. And the phrase that struck me more than any in what he said was this. I thought this was fascinating. Coming back to Suzuki and his thing about joy in, in Bach and so on. Nobody has joy until you've got something bigger than your own interests. See, I know you well enough, and I know myself well enough, that all of us here, the most crippling thing in our lives is our selfishness and our self-absorption. I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I won't do this, and I won't do that, and I get, because we're absorbed with ourselves. We are narcissistic, we are hedonistic, we're concerned with our own pleasures and our own joys. We get hurt and upset because it's about us. It's about me. It's about me. It's about me all the time. And you will never, ever know joy like that. I traveled on a train to Wakefield, and I've written an article, and I'm not sure whether to publish it or not, because um, I entitled it The Train to Hell. Uh, and for those of you who are from Yorkshire, I apologize. But... It wasn't that. It was the coach I was on had two Scottish groups. One side of the coach was a hen party heading to Newcastle. And the other was a stag night heading to Yorkshire. And I sat beside a guy who was a businessman who was doing his business on, on his phone. And then coming back, I got a bunch of teachers from Fife talking about various affairs and things. And do you know this? I was so depressed. I was so depressed. I thought, is this humanity? Is this where we're at? Is this really all that we've got? And I, you know how you go to the gym sometimes, or some of you do, and they have these screens up that they, sh they think that you want to watch. And, you know, when I think about the great music, 
And I'm not talking about style. I'm talking about rock music as well as classical music and so on. And then I see the kind of videos and the sap and the garbage and the utter self-absorbed stuff that people are being fed and are absorbing. You just... You just, you just absolutely despair. It's not joy. They're dancing around, but it's not joy. Not at all. Nobody has joy until you've got something bigger than your own interests. And there's nothing bigger than seeing God as he is. And when you do, you're filled with joy. And when you're filled with joy, you go. It is my prayer I really, you know, if I have a prayer for this fellowship or whatever fellowship you belong to, if you're visiting us, my prayer is that we would be filled with joy. I loved, I'm coming back to Suzuki, I just loved the journalist, I don't think he's a Christian, it's a scripture, this irrepressibly cheerful man, this irrepressibly joyful, he's 70 years old, silver hair and everything. This irreplaceably cheerful man. And I'm saying a word here, by the way. We often associate joy with young people. Oh, aren't the children happy? And then students, aren't they joyful? Actually, all of them are quite miserable. But the best of all joy that you see is in older people. You need to finish. If you are an older person, you need to finish well. It's not enough to have had a good start and carried on in life and then you get to the end of the days and you say, oh, I'm just waiting for this world to end. It's so miserable and I'm so miserable and so on. Yeah, that's a real testimony to the joy of the Lord being your strength, isn't it? Finish well. Finish. Knowing Christ better and deeper now than you did when you first became a Christian and than you did in the, what you consider the best of your years. Maybe it'll be that your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, your 90s, For as long as God will give you, maybe they will be the most joyful of your life and therefore the most fruitful. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we cry out to you to awaken and you smile at us and say, I am awake. Lord, we pray that you would waken us, waken your church and enable us to know and experience your joy. And anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, awaken them to their need. And may they reach out to you and cry, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.